0: This is the capstone of the great 50 days of Easter, the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is a name that means the 50th. And the Feast of Pentecost prior to the Christian uh, faith and life was a harvest festival in the ancient Near East. So if you use the word Pentecost, they would have understood uh, the people, they would have understood something about some sort of commemorative thing. And that thing is now the bestowal of the Holy Spirit upon the church. Some people refer to it as the birthday of the church. So in my sermon, I'm going to talk about some introductory things from my favorite Father Keating. I'm going to say some things about the reading from the book of Acts, which talks about the descent of the Spirit upon the disciples and the apostles. And then to say something about one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own, but will speak whatever He hears, and He will declare to you the things that are to come." Father Keating says that each feast of the liturgical year, this is from his book, "The Mystery of Christ," "The, uh, the Mystery of Christ: The Liturgy is Spiritual Experience." So he says, each feast of the liturgical year is both an event to be celebrated and a grace to be received. The grace of Christmas is to know Christ in his humanity. The grace of Epiphany is to know Christ in His divinity. The grace of Holy Week is to know him in his emptying and dying. The grace of Easter is to know him in his triumph over sin and death. The grace of the Ascension is to know him as the cosmic Christ. It is to know the glorified Christ who has passed not into some geographical location, but into the heart of all creation. The grace of Pentecost is to know that Christ is all in all and to know his spirit, the ongoing promise of the Father. So, in Acts, we have today, uh, written by our patron Luke, who wrote Acts as well as the Gospel according to St. Luke, and we have the story of the bestowal of the Spirit. Luke understood one central theme for him, there were more than one, But in the gospel, it's about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus. And Acts is about the transfer of the Holy Spirit of God to the church in Acts. So the church becomes both the beneficiaries and the fiduciaries of the Holy Spirit. So we now uh, have the presence of the Spirit. And Father Keating talked about the ascension. He meant that now Jesus has transcended space and time and dwells in each of us. Because as a sacramental church, we believe at our baptism, the Spirit is bestowed upon us and now dwells in our hearts. And we receive the Spirit and now are capable of being the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be. So in Acts, this is what is talked about. But here's the significance if you're back when you heard this stuff. Luke is uh, writing to the Gentile Christians, mainly. But they're Gentile Christians often who have had some exposure to Judaism. They didn't convert uh, principally because all males needed to be circumcised if they weren't circumcised, so they weren't going to do that. But they were... Uh, influenced and impressed by the sort of ethical outlook of Judaism and by how they understood the relationship that was talked about endlessly uh, between God and the people of Israel. So they would have been acquainted, many of them, with the great narrative. And I've talked to you, always talked to you, about the great 50 days where we read the history of salvation. We do all year but in a special sense during the great 50 days. So in our mind, just like we have uh, a great narrative, we have a personal narrative that goes around in our head, and we have a cultural narrative that we understand and uh, influences us. And so, too, there's a biblical narrative about what's gone on. So when they heard the story about the descent of the Spirit... And all of the disciples and apostles came out of the upper room and began to speak and everybody understood them no matter what language they spoke. And by the way, Pat Welsh nailed it. She got all of the names correct which was a great trial. So we have a story now about Something that is in the great narrative, which is the story of the Tower of Babel. I was taught. We were talking about this in the sermon discussion group. I'm always nervous because many of you sitting there may say, "What? The Tower of Babel?" You know. I had some people in my office about two years ago, and I looked at them and I said, "Uh, "Do you know the story of Aladdin's lamp?" No. Well, it's not the worst thing in the world, but, you know, open sesame in Arabian nights and rub rub the, the, the lamp and you get three wishes, you know? You know, that's something we all need to think about once in a while in our own examine, in our spiritual life. What if we had Aladdin's lamp... And we got three wishes. What would you wish for? What do you want? You get to have it. In this case, the narrative is about the Tower of Babel, where people thought they'd build a tower. Actually, in archaeology, we've discovered these in Babylon in the ancient Near East. They're called ziggurats. And people were building towers to get up to touch God. And they began to feel very proud of themselves in the story, in the great narrative. And so God confuses their speech. So they didn't understand one another. Well, it's a story in the ancient Near East in one sense about why do we have different languages? Why doesn't everybody speak the same language? It's just like in the story of Adam and Eve. Why do people wear clothes? Okay? It's one of the peripheral questions, but it's nonetheless in, in the biblical narrative. So, in symbolic terms, the bestowal of the Spirit reverses the consequences of the Tower of Babel. So the Spirit of God brings to the people of God, no matter how diverse and how disparate, clarity, insight, the ability to understand God's purposes with some degree of clarity and and knowledge about how to proceed. You know? I think uh, for for most of us that comes and goes. But we have been given this gift, you know. I've been reading a a, a biography. I finished it by about Thomas Cromwell, who was Henry VIII's advisor. One of them, and the reason I'm reading read it is because I've been watching a show on PBS called Wolf Hall. So we've got the first part of the story and it's over now and we're going to get the second set of episodes where Cromwell is going to lose his head. You know, he, he fixed the divorce between Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII and championed Anne Boleyn and then he turned around and it was Henry's servant and he gave Anne Boleyn the gears and she lost her head. So he has been a faithful servant of the king, his highest majesty. So in this story, at one point, Cromwell has a finger in every pie in England in terms of what it is that's important. And he becomes Henry's chief advisor. And one of the titles that's bestowed upon him is the head of the spirituality. I'm mentioning this because meaning changes over time. Words change their meaning over time. So if you were to ask somebody in the 1500s in Henrician, England, that's a word you ought to keep on ice. Henrician, Henry VIII. Not bad, the tutors. It's not a car with two doors, it's the family. <laughs> so the, if you said to somebody, what is spirituality? And they'd say the spirituality is, is all of the aspects of the church. The buildings, the property, the clergy, the rules, the laws the method of governance. Remember, we're living still in a medieval society. If you were to ask somebody in England at the time of Henry VIII, what is the sacred and what is the secular, they wouldn't know what you meant. It's all one thing, right? It's like the Middle East. Both in a benign sense in some places... And in a horrific sense, in other places, but it's one thing. It's unimaginable that the that, that the religious aspect and outlook would not influence the laws that you make to govern civil society. And that works easy when you have a, a one person in charge. And in Tudor England, you had one person in charge of everything. And in many places in the Middle East now, you have one person one guy who's calling all the shots. So it's important to understand what spirit means as it changes. Now it didn't mean that when the spirit was bestowed upon the early church. The spirit of God is God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. The Spirit of God is the process by which we understand things with greater clarity. The Spirit of God is the thing that enables us to be God's people in the world, among other things. So you might want to ask yourself, how would I know if the Spirit has been given to me, how would I know whether I'm making any progress? Well, there's a list among many that are called the fruits of the Spirit, which we're given at our baptism. We're not, we now possess the fruits of the Spirit. And they're love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a, actually, a, there are more than one list in the Bible about what the fruits of the Spirit are, but that's a fairly comprehensive list. Now my uh, my personal testimony about this is that sometimes I look at this list and I think that I maybe have made some progress in a few of these things and then when I look at the list again it looks like I've sort of lost the progress I made on the, those things that I name and there may be some other things, right? This is just a testimony that all of us go back and forwards on this. It's not something that you have and possess uh, completely. And if you think that, you're fooling yourself, for sure. So this constitutes in some way uh, a a source that we can use to uh, examine our spiritual life. When you get up in the morning and you swing your tootsies over the gunnels, ask the question, what spirits am I in? When I was a little boy, my grandmother used to say to me, Well, dearie, I'm not in very good spirits today. <clears throat> or, I'm in excellent spirits today. Right? Your emotional, mental, and spiritual states, that is spirituality. Thomas Merton, the great writer on the spiritual life in the 20th century, said, The spiritual life is the whole of life, body, soul, mind, spirit, given to God in love. So spirituality, in one sense, is life. And you may say to yourself, well, how can that be, since I'm going through so much difficulty? How can that be, the spiritual life? Well, it's worth pondering, isn't it? But all of us have a spiritual life, whether we want one or not. We have it, you know. This popped into my head. My brother—did any of you? Some of you may have had an imaginary friend when you were little. My brother had an imaginary friend named Mrs. Quero. So we would be sitting at the dining table and somebody would say something. He said, I don't think you should speak anymore about this. Mrs. Cuero is very upset. That's not what we're talking about. But in one sense, it probably had something to do with his uh, spiritual state at the moment. Right? That's how it worked. So I've said something about how the meaning of things change and how Christianity changes. There are lots of Christians in this country, in this country particularly, they're very vocal about this, that we're talking about an unbroken chain of irreformable truth. and we're always measuring society against this thing. Right? Well, and the source of authority to do this is the Bible, the Holy Scripture. So when we read certain things in the Bible, we uh, are to take them in some people's view as the absolute final word on how you're to think and understand this stuff. Well, for uh, about 150 years ago now, slavery was legal in the United States. And preachers like me preached sermons that, that said there's biblical support for slavery, slavery was assumed in the Bible. Jesus is silent on the matter of slavery. But in his teaching in the Gospels, it is clear, the drawing an inference, that slavery is offensive. And some would say it doesn't matter because we're going to leave this world and whatever's here, it doesn't matter. It's like when James Watt was the Secretary of the Interior and somebody told him that it would be okay to go into the parks and cut trees down in there for the logging interests. And he said, why should I worry about what's going to happen to that environment when I'm going to go somewhere else? Ultimately, why should we worry about it? You know? So slavery was legal and there were people who got in motion around that and said this was a great offense not just to the culture, but to to God. We've misunderstood this. The grand narrative has described this for us, but we're called to understand the movement of the Spirit. And this is true for every hot-button issue that has presented itself to the Church. So we're facing our own set and collection now that we have to come to terms with. It's not always the case that things have moved in a direction and that we need to support them. There's a lot going on in the culture that we don't and ought not to support and to speak against and, dare I say it, as my moral and ethic professor used to say, preach against. But the fact of the matter is that there are many things where the the wider culture has gotten out ahead of the church. They got out ahead. And that's no good. It's one of the reasons why people are fed up with organized religion. So you hear the term these days, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. It's very difficult to overcome in a 24-7 world where also people have access to the Internet. So depending on how things are phrased, we can we can make the case for the fact that organized religion has marked people from one horror to the next. You would never know that child abduction and child molestation and all of the bad things that happen to children is the percentages of that have been reduced. You'd never know that from watching the media, right? So that's, that's not making a commercial case for the fact that we ought not to be ever vigilant and to name it when we see it, right? So we need to be careful about what things mean and how the Spirit is leading us. Their spiritual support for this or biblical support in today's gospel. Uh, Father Raymond Brown, who was one of the best New Testament scholars in the twentieth century, a Roman Catholic priest, uh, said that when we read this gospel among uh, and others, uh, we're to interpret to each generation the contemporary significance of what Jesus has said and done. I have many things to say to you now, but you cannot bear them. So all of us need to think about that. But more to the point, the speaking of that is through us. So maybe some of us are going to say some things that people don't like. And it will affect some godly change You know, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And so that's something that each of us have to think about on a daily basis. If nothing changes, nothing changes. On a more positive note, think this week that uh, I thank God for the fact that you're a possessor of the Holy Spirit of God, an instrument of the work of God in the world, that you can be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. In fact, you're called to be. And that's where the good news is on the Feast of Pentecost. Amen.